Have you ever, I've been wondering this week about this, and I'll ask you as well, have you ever stopped to ask yourself why we say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to each other? I don't mean by that, why don't we say Happy Christmas like they do in Britain? I mean, that would make more sense. I don't mean that linguistic accident. I mean, what are we saying when we use these stock phrases, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year? What are we really trying to communicate to each other? Have you ever asked yourself that? Well, These expressions that we use, they are really benedictions. They are words of goodwill for other people to experience happiness, goodness, and beauty. Maybe you you probably don't think about that very much when you say Merry Christmas or Happy New Year to someone, but that's how those words are really functioning. When we give a child a gift or say to our family, Merry Christmas, that's shorthand really for, I, I want happiness for you. I hope you have joy and peace at this time. Or likewise, tomorrow night, for those of us who are still awake, when we say to each other, Happy New Year, we're really saying, may you have a happy year ahead. I want happiness for you in this new year. I hope this year brings you happiness. Now, granted, those are a little bit more of a mouthful, so it's easier just to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, but that's what's really behind those expressions, because you see, we as humans, we naturally hope and long for happiness and peace and satisfaction and meaning. That's what we're made for, and we want that for those we love as well, and so that's why we use these expressions. Now, the reason I've been thinking about this a lot this week is because of the stage of life that my wife and I are in with our own children. We have a range of kids, a whole range. So we still have a few kids at home. So Christmas is exciting with the presents and all that kind of stuff. Not as much as it used to be when they were really little. And of course, it's a lot more expensive now as well. Um, But we also have three adult children who were home for Christmas. And particularly with my adult children, I really feel the burden of their future. I mean, I do with the the kids at home as well, but the, the kids that are gone now and are out there trying to make it on their own in college or beyond college, you know, the, the choices they face. And I, and I wonder, what does 2019 hold for them? Is it happiness? Is it grief? Is it depression, hurt, satisfaction, frustration, fear? Is it joy? And so when I say Happy New Year to my kids, I, I'm, and that's really rooted in something that I feel very deeply. I, I hope that they're happy. I, I want them to have meaningful, a meaningful year and job and relationship and money, et cetera. And as I've thought about this this week, as you and I all wrap up 2018 and look forward to 2019 and was praying for you and praying for myself, God, what would you have me say? Because just like we're in this in-between time between Christmas and New Year's where none of us have been able to remember what day of the week it was all week. Anybody get a witness on that? Right? So too here at Sojourn, we're in between. We've just finished preaching through Galatians. We're going to do a couple of sermons in the next few weeks, and then we're going to start a new series after that. So we're in between. So it was up to me what to speak on. So I've been praying about this, and I think it became very clear to me that God wanted me to speak to you today about hope. And I wanted to title this sermon, Hopey New Year, but then I thought that was a little... A little cheesy. In fact, when I got here, I looked at the bulletin because I emailed that to Jess at one point. I panicked like, oh, she didn't actually print that, but uh, she didn't, thankfully. So instead, I'm calling the sermon, Hoping in the God of 2019. And typically here at Sojourn, 
we preach through books of the Bible, and I think that's great. I think that's the best thing to have as our main diet from sermons. But sometimes it's also really valuable to go to Scripture with a question like this one. What is biblical hope? What's the theme of hope in the Bible? And to look at what various, various Scriptures say about that and to try to hear from God. So what I want to do today is I want to give you five uh, five statements about biblical hope, and I want you to think of them like a ladder, and each of them are like a rung. So this ladder of hope that's bringing us to a new level of understanding of who God is and what he has for us, and each of these five statements I'm going to give you um, are like rungs on this ladder. So let me pause once more and just pray for God to speak as we launch into this. <clears throat> Our kind Father, we can't do for ourselves what we most desperately need. We can't quicken faith. We can't bring joy. We can't bring hope. These things are gifts of the Spirit working among us, connecting us with you, reviving us, making us more fully human. So God, I would just simply ask that you would do a new work in us even today uh, through this, these moments together. And I ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Okay, so five rungs of hope. I can get through these pretty quickly. First of all, hope is faith in the unseen. Hope is faith in the unseen. What I mean is this. It's important to understand that in Scripture, the word hope is nearly synonymous with the word faith. Faith and hope are really two peas in a pod. They're twin sisters. In English, those are very distinct words, but in the Bible, they are almost the same thing. So that means whenever you see the word hope in your Bibles, a lot of times you may not think of it quite as faith, but you should. Because in English, we use the word hope in a much weaker sense of kind of wishful thinking. So I hope the weather's nice for New Year's Eve, or I hope I get this present for Christmas, whatever it is. But in the Bible, hope is much more like faith. It's a, it's a confident trust in God. That's really what hope means, just like faith does. If there's any distinction to make between hope and faith in the New Testament or in the Bible, it's that faith, we might say, is confident trust in the now, that God is at work, and hope is the confident trust in the future. But they're both, they really overlap with each other very much. And so, by its nature then, hope is something we cannot yet see, and so it requires faith. Hope is really faith in the future. And in Romans chapter 8, there's lots of places we could go to, to think about this in the Bible, but in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the reality that our lives are often marked by suffering and difficulty, and he brings hope into it in a very interesting way. Let me read for you these verses from Romans 8. You can see them on the screen as well. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that is God, in hope, that is confidence, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, we who even have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And it's in or into this hope that we were saved. 
But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, there's so many great things we could say about these verses, worthy of multiple sermons, I'm sure. But I just want to highlight the, this one thing, that the whole way the Christian faith is described in these verses is very future-oriented and hope-focused. Salvation, did you see it, is described there as a hope that God is going to, a confidence that God is going to restore the creation itself. He says that it's into this hope that we've been saved. Christianity is described as a hope, as a confident assurance about the future. You see, a lot of times in our Christian faith, we, we tend to think of it in a backwards way. That is, we look backwards to what Jesus has done on the cross for us, and that's great, that's essential. But I would suggest to you, as I've probably said to you before in a sermon, the New Testament is primarily forward-looking in the way it describes what Christianity is. It's primarily hope-oriented. It's looking forward to what God is going to do in the future such that he can actually describe salvation as us being born into a certain new hope. As one New Testament scholar has said it, I think very well, to be a Christian, to be a person of faith, we might suggest is precisely to live as a person for whom God's future shapes the present. It's a really helpful description about what it means to live the Christian life. It's that God's future is actually shaping the present. So biblical hope is a saving faith that is faith in the unseen. Second rung of hope. Hope then determines your future. Hope determines your future. I'm sure you have heard it said many times, Attitude determines altitude, and I'm sure if you have teenagers, you find yourself saying that kind of thing quite a bit. Attitude determines altitude. There's a good dose of proverbial wisdom there because human nature is such that we become like that which we shoot for. We grow according to the size of our fishbowl. If we have high goals and if we have high standards and high models, we will tend to grow in great ways. And conversely, if we have no vision and no goals, we generally don't progress very much. That's the way God has made us. We, we grow according to the vision that we have. It's really the same thing, I hope you can see, in the weaker sense of hope, that hope determines our future. You see, we all, you and I all have some worldview. You and I all have some set of values, whether we're aware of them or not, that are based on the future and what we believe will happen if, what, if we do a certain thing now, whether you're aware of it or not, we all are functioning with a set of values that if I do this, this will happen. So for example, if you are in school and you work hard or in your job, if you work hard versus not, that working hard or not is based in a belief, whether you're aware of it or not, that that hard work is going to pay off. If you believe it will, that you're going to generally be motivated to do that. If you believe it doesn't really matter, I'm not good enough, you know, this job is frustrating, it won't matter, or school, teachers don't like me, I can't ever do well enough for them. If that's your belief in the, pre in the future, that's going to affect you, what you do now in the present. That's how hope works. Whether you're aware of it or not, the hope of the future is what motivates the present. Or take a more, a, a, a deeper example, faithfulness to your spouse, if you're married, versus maybe having an affair. If you can only see as far as the immediate pleasure, if you do not have a vision for the future, 
then in your mind, it's probably going to be just as well to do have an affair versus not or whatever the destructive behavior is. But instead, if you have a vision for the future, either on the one hand, the bad that would come, the pain, the loss, the regret, the guilt that would come from making that choice to have an affair, and on the other hand, the positive that could come from being faithful through difficult times or not, and the beauty and goodness that comes from that, it's that vision or lack thereof that motivates the behavior now. Or to approach hope's power from a different angle, this is why scripture says that it is so difficult for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says quite a few times. It's not that riches and wealth are inherently evil. They're not at all. It's that the power of wealth is that it can change and alter and cloud our hopes and make them directed in the now rather than in God's future. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so easy to do. When you have a lot, it's easy to just put your hope in that. But it's so uncertain. But instead, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. The kind of wealth that God loves is richness in good deeds and being generous and willing to share. You see, wealth and money are dangerous because, like everything else, they alter our future hope and therefore they tempt us to live differently now in ways that are not centered on God. Third rung of hope. Hope is the opposite of depression. Now, if you and I were to take a minute and say, let's make a list of all the things that humans need to live. You know, maybe some of you might think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something, whatever. But if we, were to, if we were to think of a list of things humans need, I think we'd come up with a pretty solid list. Food, water, clothing, shelter, oxygen, good internet connection. Right? I mean, that's just try going 20 minutes without that and your life will fall apart, especially if you have, again, teenagers in the home. There's nothing worse than a, a high ping when they're playing Fortnite. And if you don't know what that means, you're better off, right? But if you do, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe if we were coming up with this list, we'd also come up with some kind of deeper level things, safety, love, might come up with God. But if we weren't talking about hope right now, I bet most of us would probably not have put hope on that list, but it should be on there. It is absolutely essential for how humans are made that we need hope. How do I know that? Well, have you ever spent much time speaking with someone who's very depressed? Maybe you've been depressed yourself. Maybe someone in your family or a friend. Maybe it's chronic, someone who struggles with it constantly. Maybe it's only for a shorter time frame. I've not experienced chronic depression, but I have had moments and times, you know, some short ranges of times where I've felt very depressed. Have you ever noticed what's sort of universal across people who are experiencing depression? It doesn't matter what the core cause is. The cause can be psychiatric or psychological. It could be shame or guilt or fear or just some biological imbalance. Whatever the cause is, there's a universal trait as far as I can tell, that is the experience of people who are suffering from depression. And it's really a lack of hope. It's a hopelessness because depressed people suffer precisely because they're, 
there doesn't seem to be any way out of this situation. They just cannot see that there's any way this situation is gonna be fixed or this mess or the pain's too great and the regret is too heavy. Whatever it is, there doesn't seem to be any way to get beyond where they are. Have you ever felt that way? And when there's no hope in the human soul, the effects are disastrous. Suicide is the ultimate disastrous effect. But not only does hopelessness cause grief and misery, and then that often causes people to neglect doing other things that would help them. But also we know from medical research that depression is not just a psychological reality, it's a, it's a physical reality such that people who are experiencing hopelessness and depression, they get sick more often. Um, they have other physical problems that occur as a result. Why? Because God has made us to be creatures of hope. We are not people who only live in the past or the present. We are built to look forward and depression and, and causes an apathy and just a destruction in our souls, which is precisely a lack of hope. Now, my point in bringing this up is not to in any way shame or add to the burdens of anyone who is experiencing depression or has or will in the future, nor is it to give some kind of simplistic solution. Oh, you're depressed? All you need is hope in God. Everything will be fine. Not at all. My point is simply that Depression shows the brokenness of our world and reflects what God has for us and what, what we need deeply is a future hope. A fourth observation about hope. Hope is an expulsive power over sin. It's an expulsive, that is, it drives things out, power over sin. Back in the early 1800s, almost you know, many hundred years ago now, a famous Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, who is a professor in St. Andrews, preached a powerful sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the point of the sermon, you can find it online, it's great. The point of the sermon is very insightful. He says, the way to beat sin in our lives is not just by exhortations to not sin, a list of rules and regulations about what not to do. The only real way, the effectual way to beat sin and to, to turn towards virtue and godliness is by getting a new and higher love, an affection that drives out the lower affections. In other words, the way to root out, out in our hearts the love for sin is not by just saying to ourselves and each other, don't sin or something. Instead, we need to replace that love. We need to drive out that love for sin with something more powerful. And I hope you can see that this is really just another way of talking about biblical hope. The power to say no to sin and temptation and yes to choices of virtue and godliness is never going to come, friends, from just duty and grit. It requires so much more than that. Some of you know, that, you all know this if you're aware, that there are things that you just can't beat in your life by just telling you, stop doing this, stop doing this sin or something. I think the hymn writer, I don't know if you know this old, beautiful old hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. I think he says it very well. He says, I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh or near. You see, when Christ is near to us and is filling our vision and our hope for the future with things other than what is in front of us, 
that shows, that sheds the light on the cheap substitute, the saccharine substitute that sin is that will never satisfy our hearts. Do you find the temptation, the lure of temptation strong? Then what you need is not just telling yourself to stop it. You need to begin to redirect your hearts. Do the, be willing to do the work to say, am I lacking a vision a hope to beat this sin, which I think is what is going on. Listen to the words from 1 John 3. Beloved, now we're children of God. It's not yet appeared as to what we shall be. We're gonna become something even more. We know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, when he returns, we're gonna be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Seeing God is going to change us. And everyone, listen to these words, who has this hope, the hope that a future-based reality, a hope that we're gonna be changed into something new, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. You see, hope is an expulsive power. It replaces a weaker, false vision of the world with the true and biblical one of who we are becoming in God and Christ. And again, we could go to lots of other passages. Let me recommend to you, maybe this afternoon, to open Hebrews chapter 11 and read that wonderful passage about really a whole bunch of people who caught a vision for God in the future and that enabled them to say no to sin now. Let me just give you a couple examples from it. Hebrews 11 starts with a couple of verses that talk about this. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for an assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So that's how the whole thing is set up, that faith is this future-looking hope. And then he goes on to give a bunch of examples of people who experience the expulsive power of, of, of hope. By faith, he gives the example of Noah, who, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. I mean, the Noah story is crazy, Right? I can't think. I can't help but think of Bruce Almighty when I think of it now. But, uh, the, but the Noah story. This guy builds this ark in the middle of nowhere to float when there's no water around and of that size, and people are mocking him. I'm sure, and the whole thing makes no sense. Why did he do that? Because he believed in a future that God was through that ark going to save him and his family. Or you think about Abraham. The writer of the Hebrews goes right on to talk about Abraham. But by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Nobody likes to live in tents while some... Weirdo people are into camping, that's fine. But you don't want to live in it all the time, right? We have houses for a reason. Why, do you, why was he willing to live in tents? Because he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. It's a faith in the future. There's going to be a city where God himself is the architect and the builder and the present one that enables one to now live intense, looking forward to that. That's what gives the power. And he goes on to talk about his wife as well. And by faith, Sarah, 
who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. It's that faith that God is going to do something in the future that is commended and results in their child. So faith and confidence in, in what we hope for and assurance is, sorry, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's the expulsive power of faith and hope. And finally, fifth hope wrong. Hope in God will never disappoint. Have you ever been looking forward to a special day or time or purchase? I know you have. That's human. Uh, Pastor Kevin mentioned this last week already with Christmas with kids. You know, you can be longing for some present and we adult, as adults can do it as well. And already, what is it, December 30th, already one of the wheels is broken off probably on one of the toys and all these kind of things happen, right? This is human nature to hope for things and then to have them often disappoint. I remember when I was... 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, my family took a vacation to Alaska. This was a cruise up to Alaska, et cetera. This was back in the early 80s. And right from the start, it was a disaster. We got to the airport in St. Louis. We found that our flight had been canceled. The result was that we made it, we had to catch a later flight, so we made it to Seattle, but after the ship had already left. So we had to take another flight to try to catch up with the boat. And then those, the cabins had been sold, and so we had to sleep in the lounge. And my father-in-law was, or my uh, stepfather was not, I would not say virtue of, or paragon of virtue and patience, I'll just say about him. It was not a pleasant situation, right? And he had planned for this vacation. But this is, this is how our lives are. December 26th happens and the toys are broken already, or you had great hopes for the family meal and then people just fought, or you had great hopes for family game time and people are just rude to each other during it, right? You still take a good Facebook picture of it, so it looks like you're having fun, but the, the reality is, it's just life is full of disappointments, even the, especially the things you hope for a lot. And as the proverb says, hope deferred, makes the heart sick. There's nothing quite like the heartache of disappointed hope. In fact, some of you have been so affected by disappointed hope for so long that you've just stopped hoping because the fear of disappointment is, and the pain of disappointment is too much. But here's the good news. There is one thing that actually will never, ever disappoint. Any hope in God will never disappoint. Doesn't mean your circumstances are always going to go well. It doesn't mean the things you pray for will always happen. But it does mean, I guarantee you, that any hopes you put in God will never ultimately be disappointed. They may be transformed, but they will never be disappointed. Everything else you and I hope for and hope in, riches, cars, boats, houses, fame, fortune, popularity, Love, friendships, children, spouses, marriage, affairs, vacations, new jobs, accomplishments, stock portfolios, retirement plans, everything sooner or later, friends, is going to disappoint. But there's one thing, one person who will not, and that's God. Let me read for you Psalm 34, just a few verses from there that speak to this. The king is not saved by a mighty army, Seems like a good thing to hope in, a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. Seems like a good thing to hope in. 
A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Instead, behold, the eye of the Lord, his favor is on those who fear him, on those who hope for what? Not all these other things, but his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Romans 5 speaks the same way. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. This hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. In other words, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit guaranteeing that all of our hopes in God, in his loving kindness, will never disappoint. The world is offering all kinds of hope all the time, alternative hopes, but they will all eventually disappoint, disappoint even the things that right now in your life you think are good and gold, you think this is set for me. Everything will eventually break. And you see, hoping is being dedicated to something. And do you remember what Jesus said about serving two masters? You can't do it. If you try to serve God and anything else at the same level, then you will be disappointed. You can't. You see, our hearts, and if, you can, if I can kind of redefine hearts as hope buckets, if you can think about your heart as like a, it's a hope bucket. Your hope bucket only has so much size in it. And if you fill that hope bucket with lead, you won't be able to fill it with gold. Or think of it like your stomach. If you gorge out on circus peanuts, which in my opinion are the grossest human food ever made, right? You got a witness? Thank you, Chris. All right, he's glad you're with me on something at least. So anti-circus peanuts client uh, with me. If you gorge yourself on circus peanuts, the feast that's available to us will be tasteless. So too with our hopes. If you find that you don't have much hope in God, it's almost certainly because all you've been filling your soul and your heart with other hopes that have eventually or will eventually fail. So there's five things to say about biblical hope. It just remains for me to just kind of try to push this down a little farther into thinking with you about what this would look like for you and me as we head into 2019. Today, what if you are generally a hopeful person, right? Maybe you're like me. I tend to be optimistic and I think, bring it on 2019. I'm going to kick this thing's butt, right? Maybe that's how you show up in life and you're ready to be hopeful and that's how you live life. That's great. Well, I'm glad. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer to you, but sooner or later, trials, difficulties, loss, pain will come. God doesn't want you to live in fear of that, but the reality is that we cannot predict our lives and we cannot control them either. Our dear brother, Steve Hauser, who died just this week, his funeral will be this week. He, two years ago, would not have thought that he would no longer be among us. Even after he went into remission from cancer and then it came back, his year was not what he thought it was going to be. Or I think of a, 
an email I received just this week from an old friend who informed me that, you know, a year ago, everything was great in his life, things were looking up, and he informed me that due to a moral failure, he's about to lose everything, his family and everything. None of us know what the future year is going to bring. God doesn't want you to live in fear of that, but he does want you to be prepared to pay attention to your heart and what you're hoping in. Yesterday, I saw a well-worded tweet from Desiring God. I've never quoted a tweet in a sermon, but I guess it's almost 2019, so this is it. So, but I thought it was really well-worded. Desiring God said, don't be surprised when nothing in this world fully satisfies your longings for happiness, your desires for peace, or your hopes for the future. God made you for a different world. So even if you're going into 2019 optimistic, I want to encourage you, hold your optimism at arm's length from your heart. Don't let it be all your hope and joy because you were made for something more and different. Maybe today you're apathetic or depressed. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, another sermon, blah, 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 what's for lunch? I've sat here feeling that way. I know some of you are feeling that way right now. If that's where you are, if you're feeling overwhelmed by depression, there's no judgment or shame. But I just want you to to know this, that you were made for more than apathy. It's not bringing you joy. It's not bringing you satisfaction. Apathy is usually a defense mechanism against disappointment. Because you've been so hurt and so disappointed for so long, you just don't even want to feel anything anymore. I know that. If that's where you are today, no judgment or shame, but I just want to say to you, if all you can do is say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's all you've got as a prayer, that's enough. And I also want to say to you, no matter where you are, God's not done with you. This is not the place, if you're suffering from depression or apathy, this is, not, this is not the end of your story. God has more for you. I don't know what 2019 is going to look like for you. If all you can do is just pray a prayer of barely believing, that's okay. If you can begin to step towards paying attention to some of the hopes you have that have maybe caused that disappointment and, and begin to replace those with hopes in God, that might help. But either way, I just want to encourage you to remind yourself when you feel hopeless that God is a God of hope and he's not done with you. Maybe today you're just feeling overwhelmed (laughs) because life at every stage can be overwhelming. Maybe you're teenagers or young college people or young recent college grads trying to figure out marriage and relationships and career choices and stress about money. Maybe you're a young married and you're navigating a marriage which isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. Maybe you are a young family and it is just completely overwhelming with the nonstop 24-7 being in demand. All the choices you have to make, the, the physical and emotional weariness, the financial anxiety of that. Maybe you're like me, middle-aged and your, some things are good to go in your life, but you're feeling new burdens, like burdens for my adult children, et cetera, and my other children. Maybe you're retired and 
you've got some joys in that, but you're also now have health concerns and wondering about your legacy and wondering about um, money in the future, et cetera. Every stage of life has the ability to make you feel overwhelmed. And I, and I see in myself that I get apathetic and overwhelmed when I can't control situations. Like I want to control it. And so the things that I can control, I give myself to. And guess what? Most things in life you really can't control, especially the most important things, people you really can't control. And so I see in myself when I can't control a situation, I just withdraw and get apathetic from it and toward it. And I've been thinking this week about how God wants more for me in that. And God wants more for you in that, that he is inviting me to hope that any situation I think of is not actually hopeless, but I can trust him to do a new and good thing in that. Maybe today you're feeling defeated. Maybe you had a bad 2018 and you feel pretty hopeless about 2019. Maybe lots of bad things happened. Maybe you did some really stupid things and you're sitting in the ashes of that now. Well, the good news is, I want to say to you, that the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is not just backward looking that we can have forgiveness of our past sins. That's absolutely true. But it's just as much or more forward looking that God is by his spirit, if you are in Christ, transforming you into his image. That is good news. You see, Christmas that we just celebrated is so important because Jesus really came, the Son of God became a real human. And that was essential so that he could die and take the place for our human sin. But it's also just as important, Jesus' real humanity that we celebrate at Christmas is just as important because he was the second and last Adam. He reboots humanity. He restarts humanity. And so that all those who are in Christ are now becoming fully human as we are united with him who is now ascended to God. So Christmas matters not just for the past, but for the future. And this is what your 2019 can be not by your own strength, but if you are a Christian, by the power of the Spirit, you can actually become someone new, someone different than you were in 2018. You may feel completely stuck and hopeless in, in besetting sins and habits and all kinds of things that are, that are trapping you. I understand that. And I'm not saying it's an easy fix, but I am saying that you are not stuck where you are. The message of the gospel is that he wants to transform you into a full image of himself to fix the cracks in the image or the icon that you are of God himself. And that's good news. That is very good news. And that is the forward-looking hope that the gospel brings to us today. December 30th, 2017. I don't remember what I was doing that day. What's happened in this year for you between December 30th, 2017 and December 30th, 2018? I would imagine some things have been the same and some things have changed, some things expected, some things unexpected. None of us knows what 2019 is going to bring, death, disease, life, health, sickness, accident, wealth, loss, joy. 
We don't know, but we can be confident. We can be confident in whatever circumstances we face in 2019 that if we will direct our hearts to hope in God, we will find life. And as we close today, as is our habit here, we love to end each service with a celebration of the Lord's table. And there's so many great things we can say about this commemoration. We can think of it as a past-looking thing to Jesus' sacrifice. But we can also think of it, as he himself does, as a future thing. That he is giving this in a hope and a confident faith, inviting us to believe in the future he has for us. And the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Partake of this with me in remembrance. And he took wine and he said, this, this wine is my blood that is shed for you. And that this meal that Christians take together is something to invite us to look forward to the hope of a, of, of a banquet that we're going to have when he restores us and restores all things. So if you're a Christian today, we want to invite you to come forward and take this as an act of faith. If you're not, we, we just say, don't come partake of this. This is not some magic ritual that's going to do something for you. This is an act of faith in God's past and future for us. If you're not a Christian, let me invite you that I would love to talk with you. Maybe God has said something to you today and you need to follow up on that. I'm here for you or any other pastors or elders would be happy to speak with you as well. So I'm gonna pray. The musicians are gonna come forward. And then if you're, if you're hoping and trusting in Christ, come forward as an act of faith as you look forward to what God has for you in 2019. Let me pray.